Psychology in Seattle. So, Rebecca, I thought I would ask you some questions that the listeners are asking us, and we would answer them. And we would also talk about Russian Doll because yeah, you wanted to to well, uh, talk about that because you finally finished it. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm I'm altered. You're altered. In a good way. In a good way. All right. Well, let's let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm struggling with technology, <laughs> and I'm a therapist in South Seattle. So this first email is from patron Joshua. Joshua writes, do you think that attachment style of therapist has any correlation with which modality they gravitate towards? Oh, for sure. Uh, Bob, who is a, a, um, a guest on the podcast, talked about having at some level a disorganized attachment style. <laughs> and to my understanding, he does DBT, dialectical behavioral That's therapy. That's hysterical. Do you think that attachment influenced his decision to use that model? Well, Bob's not here, but Rebecca is. Uh, yeah, you said absolutely that attachment style can cause well, someone to be gravitated towards a particular theoretical model. It impacts everything else you do in your life. I mean, how could it not impact what you can tolerate doing all day, every day? Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, I'm trying to figure out how I would explain how my attachment style um, impacts the therapy that I do. And, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not, I will, I will say that, um, you know, some of the styles are very didactic, like uh, cognitive behavioral says, do this, do that, do this, do that. And so if you're a therapist that needs structure, of course you're going to be gravitated towards that. Yeah, so that was my first thought was that I would find pretty – because I'm like you. I believe that attachment style affects a lot of different things. And so I I initially thought that I couldn't find any research on this. I'm guessing there might be, but I couldn't find any. I found in my anecdotal experience with people around me – that there were no correlations. I, I think that the broader question of does our attachment style affect the way we are as a therapist? Absolutely. The way we react to clients, the way we interpret them, our countertransference intensity, whether or not we even become a therapist or not, I think we're more likely to become a therapist, I think, if we're insecure, honestly, because uh, maybe even particularly preoccupied because we're just more others focused kind of a thing. I don't know, but you could also be avoidant narcissistic and think you'd be an awesome, you know, therapist who would tell everybody right. what to do for sure. Exactly what to do. Yeah. So, but when I think about people around me, uh, I I thought about all the colleagues that I have, and I have a lot. I, I had a hard time. Um, I had a hard time finding one colleague who was like mostly secure attachment. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I, I would say you're one of the most securely attached people I know. Um, and what would you describe your modality as? I am integrative. Uh, <laughs> I love all the theories. I even love cognitive behavioral theory. I, if I had to choose one, I would choose more of an interpersonal 
intersubjective psychodynamic psychoanalytic model if I had mm-hmm. to choose one but but there's no way I could live only in that world um, so and there are lots of problems with that world so so I'm very integrated but when I think about people around me uh, I'm not going to name names uh, and you're not in this list but uh, a lot of uh, I can think of three clearly disorganized attached colleagues of mine whom I've worked with for many years and one of them is like extreme cognitive behavioral like mm. like you know I've I don't know if I've ever met someone who is more staunchly cognitive behavioral the another one is extreme experiential like hates cognitive behavioral therapy and then another person is um is into attachment theory, I guess, to put it broadly. So that's all across the board right there, right? And then I think about other people, another colleague of mine who I would think would be more avoidant, and they're into cognitive behavioral theory. Another person I work with is more of the preoccupied side of things, and they're into interpersonal psychodynamic work. And then another colleague of mine who I thought is secure mostly and they're into family systems theory. So I I don't really think it's, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of, in my anecdotal experience, much of a correlation. Broadly speaking, attachment theory, I think has a great deal to do with our capacity for empathy, for our tendency for burnout. So what I know from all of my, Vicarious trauma research is the chances of feeling vicariously traumatized increase with the therapies with the therapist's exposure to trauma previous to them becoming a therapist. So I wonder if it's more about the intensity at which people adopt a theory um, could be based on their attachment style versus a specific attachment style. Do you know what I'm, I mean? Versus a specific theory. Yeah, um, it's not that they choose anyone theory. It's that the way they come at it is with you know a hammer versus a feather, right? Um, and you know, I would say that tr- could be true of me. That in times where I feel less secure, I turn more intensely to different theories. Um, and then you know, there's times where I feel really grounded and like I can kind of fly by the seat of my pants, and I'm fine. Um, so I think there's even variety over your career. Um, yeah, I could see that when I think about the people who I would say are more insecure attached, they are more, uh, rigid, I would say about Mm -hmm. their theoretical orientation and more denigrating of so-called opposing, uh, theories. Great. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, when you grow up with mistreatment or neglect or uncertainty, you will look for safety where you can find it. And there's a general sense that danger is out there. And when you find the safety of a particular theory that makes you feel better about your job and your place in the world, and there's a threat from a seemingly opposing force of people, then there's a, a tendency to th- feel as though that's a threat and to see everything through those, through that lens. Right. 
Yeah, and nowhere was that more true for me in the art therapy world where people get really intense about theory. And you can definitely see the intergenerational trauma in that field where people get really like righteous about staying in their own camps and not learning from different theories or thinking in from different ways or writing someone off immediately if they find out they were trained at a certain program or um, really so even, I, even within different art therapy modalities. Oh yeah, for sure. Wow. You'd think you'd all love each other because right, you you're, you're an oppressed class to begin with. You think you would, you know, stick up. For yeah. It. But within that, you know, marginality of being an oppressed group, you know, the chances if you don't really look at your own history, the chances are pretty intense that you'll attack each other over a scarcity model, right? I have to be on top. There has to be a strata. Like, we can't all just get along because, you know, someone's got to be on top. Um, that makes me really sad because... It was, yeah, I just know that art therapists are kind of crapped on by the, the the mental health profession in general. Uh, it's getting better, um, especially with uh, Vice President uh, Pen- uh, Pence- <laughs> Pence's wife spreading the news. <laughs> thank you so much for bringing that up. Now I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, on the topic of intergenerational transmission of trauma patron scott wrote in asking us to talk that's a nice segue congratulations so i don't have the email from patron scott but what can you say about intergen intergenerational trauma transgenerational trauma um well i see it in my practice all the time you know we're talking about what went wrong in someone's childhood but then we're also talking about their parents' immigration history or the, you know, the violence or the, I especially see it with alcoholism that their parents' generation may have stopped drinking, but the patterns of being in an alcoholic family are so present. Um, You know, that the, the generation, the grandchild generation is still experiencing this crazy family system that they can't explain. Um. So, yeah, it's really clear and a lot of marginalized groups talk about it. You know, the native population, African-American, Jewish population that I'll just speak for myself. I mean, I am a generation plus away from the Holocaust. A lot of my friends are children of Holocaust survivors, but it feels to me like it happened yesterday. Like, I mean, I, I know that level of terror and of not trusting and um, you know, it seems very close, although it was over, I don't know, 40 years before I was born, 30 years before I was born. Um, So yeah, I, I, that's how I experienced it. I don't know. What would you say about it? You know, you say 40 years, but you know how many years? 25. Yeah. 25. It was was 25 years. When you, I, I was just thinking about this the other day, World War II ended 25 years before you and I were born. Yeah. And I thought, you know, like that would be like a 25 year old today or someone born today is the same distance between like grunge or mm-hmm. like when grunge died, when, when Kurt Cobain died. So, right. so, so someone born today. 
which feels like yesterday. I just, had a, I just had yeah. a dream about him two nights ago. Really? What was yeah. it about? I was trying to get back to this party to get my stuff. And then there goes Kurt Cobain skateboarding by and he's smiling. He looks so happy. And I just got entranced by looking at him like, oh, my God, you're okay and you're happy. God, thank God. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you posted it on Facebook. Yeah. But it was like so profound. Like, there goes Kurt Cobain on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So someone born today, Kurt Cobain will have died 25 years before That's they were born. crazy. When we were born. Uh, it was 25 years after World War II. That yeah, that's nuts. It's it's nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, just just nuts. Um, so, uh, yeah, it 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 hasn't been that long ago. And I remember when I was young, and I would hear old people talking about how things didn't happen that long ago. They'd be like, you know, World War II wasn't that long ago, or World War One wasn't that long ago, or Civil War wasn't that long ago. And I was like, are you insane? It was a long ass time ago. It's basically like another planet, you know. But the older you get, the more you realize, nope, like things, things really just uh, are, you know, a snap of the finger, so to speak, to use an Avengers reference. But um, so, yeah, uh, I can speak for myself a little bit in that for Japanese American immigrants. Mm-hmm. One, there's the trauma of living in a country where Japan, where there was famine and you would need to emigrate to survive and then when you are in the states and you are oppressed and treated like a second-class citizen or not even a citizen you're treated like a second-class human being and and there are laws passed by the government in washington dc to stop people like you from gaining citizenship the way that other people can and uh, from immigrating and all this kind of stuff and then from owning land and then you live in a, you know, racist society in rural Washington. And uh, there are uh, certain jobs that you can only do because no one ever sees you like farming. When you're farming, no one ever sees you, you know, you're just out out somewhere far away in a field and you're toiling away. And so, and you couldn't buy land. You had to lease it and the landowner could, you know, uh, scam you for all your money and it was just a you know a lot of really horrible times and a lot of just trying to survive and then the government locks you up during world war ii Mm -hmm. even though your your children were born in the states and your children's children were born in the states and they're they're all citizens of the country uh, the same way that all the other people who are born in the united states are treated as citizens and yet they're imprisoned for a number of years and then you're let out and there's no, there's no uh, help. There's no uh, apology. There's no recognition for, for decades. And Japanese culture itself is sort of set up to deal with that in such a way that's very silent. There's a, I can't remember the exact saying, but there's this popular proverb so to speak in japanese culture that essentially is just like look deal with it Mm. (laughs) that's that's just life you know and and there's also a certain pride and honor in dealing with it it's a Mm -hmm. it's sort of like a the quiet martyr is a very upheld archetype in japanese culture much less so than in in the united states anyway if you ever watch like anime or japanese culture movies there's often a central figure who is the quiet martyr of a, a, mm-hmm. a very silent, non-emotional, uh, hu- someone who is pr- 
probably suffering, but you would just never know. And that is a definite streak in my family. I mean, the, the, that, that mechanism of just like shut down and, right. and yeah. don't speak up and deal with it and don't ask for help. It, it's all absolutely there, exacerbated by the various traumas that, and so I'm, I'm suffering from that legacy, right? And, um, you know, I don't think it's on the degree of what obviously the Jewish people went through. And also, don't com- don't compare our traumas. <laughs> well, well, I mean, just look at the the people I often think about when I think about transgenerational trauma. I, th- I think of three groups. I think of Jewish people in general, and so there's and there's different groups of Jewish people. You have Jewish people who like escaped Nazi Germany, and then you have Jewish people who. Uh, survived and then made it to the States. And then you have Jewish people in like Poland who like were completely wiped out, you know? Right. Um, and then, my... Yeah. And then you, and then you have Polish people in general who were just traumatized. It wasn't just Jews in Poland. It was all Polish people who were traumatized by over a number of different wars between Germany and, and Russia. Cause they were always this, this like buffer right, zone always in the middle yeah. and they were just getting, you know, routinely literally raped and killed and village burned down and refugees and famine and enlisted into wars that they didn't want to do. And so when you meet Polish people, they will often exhibit a lot of issues and you, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out where that came from. Another group is African-Americans, as you mentioned, when you enslave an entire group of people, and then those people tend to get married to each other and have kids, then uh, it just gets passed down to the generations. Like uh, a, a discrete kind of example of this is you are a slave and you're ripped away from your children or your spouses or whatever, you know, because uh, that happened, you know, to the slaves and they weren't necessarily allowed to have families. And at the child grows up with insecure attachment. They grow up feeling abandoned. They don't, they don't say, oh, I forgive my parents because of institutionalized slavery in this country. No, the child is two years old. They just feel sad and hurt and neglected by the fact that for whatever reason, their dad isn't there anymore, or their mom isn't there anymore, or their aunt isn't there anymore, or their grandparents aren't there anymore. And they're hurt by that. And it, it teaches this, them this lesson that life is terrible and they can't really depend on other people. And maybe they're not even worthy of themselves. And so they grow up. And then they have their own kids and they struggle with marriage because they've have these massive attachment injuries. Well, guess what happens? Well, their kids also have massive attachment injuries. And then those kids get married, have kids and, and the cycle just goes on and on and on. And unless there's some systematic intervention with, you know, certain populations to, to help them to be, not as to help them to bring them up to like the average attachment injury of like the general population, then you're just going to see crime. You're going to see dropout rates. You're going to see more drug addiction. You're going to see more divorce. You're going to see more children out of wedlock. You're going to see uh, self-esteem issues. You're going to see uh, relationship issues, education problems, job problems. And no one seems to be pointing at that, right? It's all like, well, you know, it's racism. And for sure, racism is a part of it. But attachment injury is is fundamental to one's personality. And so I don't know if you've talked about this on your show, but with the trauma-informed care 
there's this great interview with Oprah Winfrey is kind of discovering trauma informed care for the first time. And she has that school for girls in South Africa. And she talked about how after learning all this, she completely changed the curriculum of the school that until you address the trauma and calm the nervous system, nobody's going to learn any new skills. You're just putting band-aids on, but for real systemic change to happen, um, you know, the whole community needs to feel safe. And that's really different than one or two people feeling exceptional and moving on. Um, and so I think that's, you know, I know trauma informed care is on its way out now. I don't know what's coming in, but that idea that the first step that needs to happen is to calm the nervous system. Why is, is it, why is it on the way out? Something's on the way in. I don't know. I'll have to, I made the, I'll have to look it up. Um, Something better? I think, I think, well, now the idea, I think it's trauma-informed community care that you really have to address the needs of the entire community, not just the single person. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I, it's something that as a profession, we have neglected in this really horrible way. It's clear from the data that public health and, and our, you know, the, the marriage between what you and I do in our offices and public health is, uh, is not being done very much. Um, I, I took classes on community psychology and it really opened my eyes to all this. And there's just so much we could be doing. Like, you know, I don't know what community trauma informed care would be, but imagine if you just added a number of different professionals. Again, you have to raise tax dollars for this sort of thing and politicians who care to allocate such things for that. And then you just start, you know, you get these talented people who are, have all this enthusiasm and you just sort of set them loose and they can figure it out. You know, okay, we'll go to the community centers. We'll go door to door. We'll get different parties going and, and we'll talk about this and we'll talk about that and we'll help the parents with their own emotional regulation. We'll help the parents attune to their kids as a group. We don't have to isolate particular families into a room. Right. We, yeah. can, we can do this as a group. We can make it fun. We can make it non-stigmatizing. We don't have to call them clients. We don't have to say that they're patients or they're in mental health. We're just talking about like fun parenting stuff, you know, <laughs> And things and that the the benefit to society that this would have, you know, it, I hate when we have to do this because it's sh- the benefit should just end there. We should just, you know, when I get when someone falls down and I reach my hand down to pick them up because they've fallen down and they've hurt themselves. I don't need some other benefit other than the fact that I just help someone that's, you know, that's my secure attachment kicking in. Right, Rebecca? It's just, it's just good. It's just, it's good to give. It feels good and it's right. It's moral. But in today's world, you always have to tie it to some kind of like future gain, which is obvious to, which is actually easy to, to identify, which is when you have an oppressed uh, group of people who have been traumatized through dozens and dozens of generations and they're experiencing racism and all these other horrible things. And you start with the families when the kids are young, when the kids are, you know, six months old and you raise the abilities for those, for, you know, a hundred of these parents in a community to regulate their own emotions, to process their own traumas, uh, maybe not in therapy, but just kind of, you know, there's, there's skills you can teach people or sort of, um, 
principles you could tell people about trauma, self-care, so to speak, and then parenting, attuning to the kids. And you do that. Well, what happens is all those kids end up growing up with more secure attachment. They're less likely to drop out of school. They're less likely to commit a crime. They're less likely to become addicted to a substance. They're less likely to break into your car. They're less likely to break into your house. They're less likely to shoot your neighbor. They're less likely to be a drain on the welfare system, so to speak. There's so many benefits that are absolutely demonstrated by empirical observation, and it boggles the effing mind <laughs> that what we focus on is just locking people up. And, right. and I'm like, okay, great. You know, lock people up. Fine. You know, it, I'm not, I'm not saying we should just let people, you know, roam the streets who need to be, uh, you know, if someone victimized me or my family, I'd be like, lock the person up. But the point is, is that prevention and data shows it's not like some woo woo, uh, you know, nice, nice person in a bubble talking. It's like, this is hard science and it's obvious. It's obvious. And the fact that we don't have a society focusing on things and, you know, everyone just, you know, holding up pickets about like the, the symptoms of the problem instead of the problem. It just drives me crazy. Yeah, I hear you. And I worked in the South Bronx for a year, so I really, really saw it. Here's what society looks like when society collapses. Did you see think, evidence of attachment injury in those people? Oh, my God. Yeah. And you'd see people who were on all sides of the foster care system. They'd grown up in the foster care system. They'd lost their own kids to the foster care system. You know, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was very intense. Yeah, um, one of the most stark uh, parallels that I would see would be I would be working with a family and I would sense that the mother was like completely done with parenting and of this 14-year-old daughter. And she just seemed like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not... I have no more energy for this. I want the state to take my kid away. I'm done. And once investigating, I'm, I, I figured out that she was somehow separated from her parents when she was 14. Like she had mm -hmm. a away because of abusive parents or her parents were drug addicted or something. And she was put into foster care when she was 14. And I, you know, it all started to make sense that this attachment is not only generalizable to someone's overall personality, but it can also become extremely reflective of the way we lead our lives as parents. Even though we know as 14 year olds, when I grow up and I have kids, I'm not going to do this to my kids. Right. But, and, and often clients have no idea that there's this kind of key that they are repeating something really unconsciously. I mean, that's the work. Um, Often, you know, it's uh, what's that goodwill hunting? You know, he has that magic moment where Robin Williams says to him, I don't know, you did enough or something, and the light bulb. Finally it's not your fault, on. it's, it's not, not your fault. fault. Sorry, <laughs> what the answer is. Um, you know, and for some clients, you do find that magic moment where you're able to start putting it together for them, and then and often it's kind of a horror for them to realize, like, oh god, I am repeating this pattern. Um, you know, because nobody wants to admit that. No, right? no. Like how resistant was your client once you tried to point that out to her? What she was. Well, up to? I saw it so often. So I'm thinking of a number of different people. I found that for some, they could intellectually understand it, but in their soul and their heart, it was hard for them to change how they felt, which is of course the, mm -hmm. you know, there's 
uh, insight is one thing and then healing is another. So it helps though, for some people to say that they're like, Oh, I, I can see that. Maybe I should tone down what I believe to be the righteous path of rejecting this child mm-hmm. and, and instead maybe questioning my reactivity to this child. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, We've talked before about transgenerational trauma in Star Wars, right? Ooh, that's the best episode we've, I've ever done. I think that's my crowning moment of podcasting. I need right. to get back to that level. Yeah. So just to review, you have a woman who's enslaved and abused and traumatized and is, you know, it's a horrible situation for her. So she's going through all this trauma. She has a kid uh, without ever having sex. Because, you know, Anakin is, is Jesus. And <laughs> I missed that part, but we'll talk about that later. Well, that was, you know, that's the no, terrible. Let's not go. Let's not go there. Let's well, that's the <laughs> terrible thing about the prequels, right? Because, you know, they introduced this whole idea that Darth Vader was, didn't have a father and that these midichlorians were, you know, involved somehow. I don't know. So I, it was a pretty dumb moment. But anyway, Anakin was ripped away from his so Anakin grows up in this slave situation. He's going through a lot of trauma. They don't really go into this in the movie, of course. Uh, and then he is ripped away by strangers from space who claim that, you know, he's the one. And, you know, that must have been horrible for him to just, oh, and for all the Jedi, for that matter, they're always, they're all ripped away from their parents at, at an early age. I mean, it's just a recipe for attachment disaster. Then he starts seeing visions because he's, strong in the force about his his mother being in trouble. He goes back to his home planet to find that she's been kidnapped and then she dies in his arms. And Ugh. he, he was supposed to be the one, the powerful one who could actually he can't save her. Right. No matter how oh, I'm crying. <laughs> yeah. No matter how powerful he is, he, he can't even, he can't even, Anakin, it's not your fault. Yeah. Right. So that's the tr- the primary trauma for him, and he is going through some complicated grief at that point, and blames the Jedi Council because mm. they're holding him back. If they didn't hold him back, he would have been able to save his mother, which of course would make sense. I mean, there's total analogies to our you know regular earthly life about this. It, people will blame themselves when their spouse dies, or their child dies, or their parents die. They will blame the physicians. They'll blame mm-hmm. the person who died. They'll blame society. They'll blame, and some of it might be valid, but if not supported or um, processed somehow, it can really grow into some, uh, you know, real ongoing pain. And that's what Anakin experienced. Anakin falls in love with Padme because he's desperate for some kind of attachment because he's been completely ripped away from her. You know, well, and she's hot. You know, I mean. It's not like, I mean, he did pick a good person, you know? <laughs> true, true. And so like, then the, it, he fell in love with a puppet. I mean, you know, she's like hot and, and she has a similar story, but has good attachment. Right. And so he starts seeing visions of her dying. And since he's still in massive grief about his mom and he's blaming the Jedi council he starts to turn to the emperor for some support who is giving him real answers. Like, well, there's, there's a way, there's a way to use the force to actually bring people back and to, Mm. to help them. 
And so he's like, huh, okay. Uh, I know this is kind of wrong, but I'm at a Jedi council and I desperately want attachment because, and I'm not going to let this one go. And so he goes to the dark side and kills everybody. And then she dies anyway, which, you know, people have a problem with, you know, exactly how that happened. It's like she died of a broken heart. But anyway, he's traumatized further. And then his kids are taken away from him, which can't. He doesn't even know, right? Yeah, he didn't know. Uh, But the kids are raised by foster parents who were perhaps a little ambivalent about raising kids. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you watch Star Wars A New Hope, the connection between Luke and his quote unquote aunt and uncle weren't exactly, weren't, weren't, didn't seem very strong. You know what I mean? I don't know. Um, maybe they are they're, hard working on a desert planet though. I mean, right. maybe there's just not a lot of room for a lot of touchy feely love. That's true. A uh, lot of moisture machines, a lot of, <laughs> lot of droids to take care of. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of things to take care of. Yeah. Luke and Leia both feel a longing for something. Uh, and and Luke, his parents or his foster parents die, ironically by his dad's orders, right? And then he latches on to Obi Wan, who proceeds to die very quickly. Leia is raised during a time of war by a senator foster parent who is involved in the rebellion. Lots of loss. Uh, Leia falls in love with an irresponsible nerf herder, which is you know common if you're struggling with attachment you, you know always Who's also hot <laughs> i mean you know like they have good taste let's give them that <laughs> and then uh ben is born ben uh solo is born uh and future kylo ren and the parents are always fighting because they have attachment issues uh they and, and so they know they, now from solos right his story that han had a lot of attachment issues, right? And the parents his, are fighting. Ben his, grows up in this, go ahead. His first love turns to the dark side as well. Right. And we'll never see that, you know, resolution of that because the first movie bombed, but. I love the first movie, but that might've been that I saw it in Barcelona with English subtitles. And I was no, I loved like, it too. I loved it too. <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, the haters can, can go to hell. Uh, <laughs> uh, the parents divorce, Le- Leia and and Han Solo divorced and Han abandons him essentially. And Ben grows up with complicated grief around that. He kind of hates his parents and he feels powerless over the, the pain in his family. And since he is born with the knowledge that he has the force too, and his parents are powerful, he turns, he tries to find something of power to identify with. Well, he can't go to his parents because he hates them. He goes to his grandfather who is Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker. Well, but first he goes to his uncle. Right. That relationship doesn't work out. I hate to correct you on your Star Wars diatribe, but... No, you're right. You're right. Some important details here. It's important detail. (laughs) And, well, but... And because his uncle has attachment issues himself, which manifest as difficulties holding on to the light side of the Force... Well, he's also... He fears too much power. I mean, that's... You know that whole scene that goes down of why did the did um, Luke and the child's relationship falls apart as he fears his power? Right, right, because he grew up with a lot of insecurity, and and a lot of powerful people were not secure attachments. Right, his own father was not a 
It's not a consistent attachment in his life. Plus he took his hand. I mean, you know, you're going to have issues for life after that. Yeah. Yeah. I've had many clients with that situation before. (laughs) Um, So then Ben grows up to kill his father and he almost, almost kills his mother. And, you know, God knows what he tries everything in him to kill his uncle, but he doesn't understand that it's merely a projection. Yeah. So, and God knows what Kylo Ren and Ray's children are going to be like. I mean, what kind of attachments are they going to have? Is this, so that's the latest gossip. That's what's next. (laughs) Well, I'm kind of trolling people on the internet right now and Birdo included because there's some people who really want Kylo and Ray to get together. There's a whole thing called uh, Raylo shipping. Have you heard this before? <laughs> no, but I'm they, dying to know more. <laughs> so you know how they're like they're the flat earthers and that. Kind oh of thing? yes. Well, you have the the Kylo sh- the 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 Raylo shippers is what they're called. Ray Kylo shippers. They because they really want them to be in a relationship. There was a similar thing with like Harry Potter. I can't remember who, what two characters people really wanted to get together. That seemed weird. I think it was like Snape and somebody, I don't know. But now there are people who really want them to get together. And there's all these like hints in the movies that they're going to get together. Then you have a whole other group of people who are like incensed at the idea of these of these two people getting together and like there's a ongoing war. Just look it up on the internet. Look up, look up Raylo shippers and like you will say, just like, and it's ridiculous because it's like, you know, you realize that just a, you know, one guy is going to write this story and it, he can make it go however he wants it to go. And it's not like a real thing, you know, but anyway. Well, and I was fascinated because I sent you the trailer. I was so excited. And you said, I don't watch them. Yeah. And I, I was wondering I, how long that had been the case. Like, and how do you run other theaters? What do you do? How do you maintain this? strong limit <laughs> i look down at my feet <laughs> and i cover my ears uh but no i've i've since watched the rise of skywalker trailer uh and uh what do you think about the emperor laughing at the end uh well he's always laughing i mean when is he not laughing he thinks this whole thing is a joke i mean he's but- he sets everyone up but people are really upset because they're like, wait, he's dead. You can't bring him back. They're really oh. upset. Like Umberto is like very upset. Mm. Very upset. A lot mm-hmm. of people on the internet are upset. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm reserving judgment because the marketers of movies now are so clever mm-hmm. with, with their trailers. Because I could see like Kylo Ren is just like talking to him in his mind and he laughs in his mind. I mean, he's so, um, you know, attached to that dogma that even if he's dead, he's still carrying him with him. Right. That's that for some crazy Jungian crap right there. That's- I, could, I could see that. All right. Let's take a break. And when we get back, let's talk about Russian Doll. What do you say? Russian Doll. All right, back from the break. Uh, just so everyone knows, we have new tiers on Patreon starting June 1, 2019. So if you want to g- get in on the cheaper tier levels, which have different kind of swag and stuff, become a patron by June 1. Also know that we have a scholarship for $2,500. This is our second scholarship. Amazing. You can apply for it on our website. The, the due date is June 30th. We've already had a handful of people 
applying. When people are writing their quote-unquote essay, some people are not providing enough um, detail. and Detail, everyone. Yeah, so... in the details. Yeah, it's important that you prove really that you are really thinking about some of these questions, that you're not just like writing one or two sentences. Also... Um, are you doing anything in the near future that you want to plug? So my book is just simmering along. It's going to come out super soon. Like maybe, so we're at the beginning of May. I bet by July it'll be out. Vicarious Trauma Illustrated. Uh, I've hand-painted about 50 panels um, looking at how vicarious trauma is explained through psychoanalytic Jungian feminist uh, narrative and mindfulness theories. What's it going to be called? Vicarious Trauma Illustrated. And it'll be available on Amazon in July 2019. Mm, yes, fingers crossed. Also, we're doing Discord, which is a, a chat a forum kind of thing. And the cool thing about it is that it's it's really fun because there's all these different channels. And I, I'm planning on being on there every Thursday, two o'clock Seattle time. Really? Yeah. So if you want to join us, Rebecca, it could be fun. Okay. Tell me again, two o'clock. Every Thursday, Discord. Every Thursday. All right. I'll look into it. Yeah. So you have to go to the Psychology in Seattle uh, uh, server. There's a Psychology in Seattle server, and then there's different channels in that server. And the you have to get a Discord account, uh, which is pretty easy to do. And I often will post the link on social media when, when we're about to go on. So Russian Doll, uh, what'd you think of it? God, I loved it so much. I feel altered. Like I just, I want to make a TV show now. I just, I'm blown away by what happened <laughs> on the television set. You want to make a TV show? Yeah, of course. Like you want to make a TV show in, in, in the same vein? Oh, yeah. What, what would it be? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But I think what she did, talk about intergenerational trauma. I mean, what she did in terms of exploring um, addiction in terms of, and using the metaphor both of video games and of New York City feeling like an endless loop Um was just amazing. And it's funny, I listened to the podcast that you guys did previously about it. And then I watched a bunch of uh, shows by her and the director, who's the same woman. Leslie Headland. Yeah, same woman that did um, Bridesmaids. Is that um, one of the key pieces of the story is that she doesn't wake up in bed and start her whole day over. She wakes up at the party st- already staring into a mirror. Um, and so it's this metaphor of, you know, suddenly becoming conscious at some point of your day and realizing, oh, fuck, I'm just on repeat. Every day is just like the day before. Um, so did you identify with the themes at all? Oh, yeah, completely. And, you know, I mean, it's talk about intercultural trauma, like um, – so Natasha Leone is just like me, like Jewish on both sides. And you can really feel it in the story of, um, you know, that loop around identity. 
and I've also lived in New York. And so that piece, the, the ending scene, I hope I'm not giving anything away is that um, they're kind of, they're two identities, their souls unite in this magical parade in the East village. And if you've ever been to New York, there are these moments like that where you turn the corner and something so magical and bizarre is coming down the street right at you that it makes you kind of question everything. You've lived through a hundred hellish days before that of, you know, bad subway rides and horrible smells, but like there's just kind of this magic in this city. And I, I felt like they represented that. Really. Where'd you live in New York? I lived in the West Village and then I lived in Prospect Park, but I worked in the South Bronx. Um, so I saw a lot of the city, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So West Village is like lower Manhattan area? Lower know. Manhattan. Um, it's famous for like the Beatnik era, era. Stonewall happened right there. I mean, you know, every is the, corner. Is the you Chelsea turn. Hotel near there? Chelsea Chelsea is actually the next neighborhood north. Um okay. Is that NoHo yeah. or what? What are, what are they call it? Hell's yeah. Kitchen or something? Hell's Kitchen is north from Chelsea. Okay. Um, and then the other place you lived in in Manhattan? Is the famous Prospect Park, which is um, right on the beautiful park. Um, it has the bandshell there where like Prince played. Um, and then there's all these amazing, you know, it's like a micro community. But I love which, the idea. Which, that, side of the, which side of the park? Uh, is that the side closer to Manhattan? Okay. Um, on the F train. I was on the F. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, uh, you live, I mean, that's like, you know, you really got the full New York. Experience. I did the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm really glad I did. And I'm really glad I left. I mean, that's the other part of the show is that like <laughs> all the ways that she dies, if you've lived in New York, these are all ways that you feared of dying. Like a couple times she falls. So in New York, everything is so small that the grocery stores, the way they do their storage is actually underneath. So the sidewalk opens up, these two metal grates open up and then there's a super deep stairway down into some kind of storage area. Um, and so whenever they're open, you know, there's this huge fear that you're just going to fall in and die. And at one point she does fall in and die. <laughs> yeah. My wife, I, I don't know if you know this, but I started talking about my wife on the podcast. Yes. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, uh, new uh, identity. Uh, Stacy owns a, a spa in Manhattan called Daphne. If anyone's in Manhattan, you want to get a facial or you want to buy super expensive serums and whatnot for your face, then go to Daphne. It's quite a classy joint, but it's in the, it's in what you're talking about. This, this sort of super old uh, construction that's been renovated, obviously, but underneath is this dungeon. Terrifying. Yeah. With the rats down there. Uh, It might look fancy on the outside, but let me tell you the vermin. Yeah. And it, it even goes under the street. Like it's not just yes. under the building. It It's like a tunnel that kind of goes like someone tunneled under the street at some point to like expand the basement. And when they were renovating and moving in, it was just like, what do we do with this down here? I mean, it was just this really, you know, and you have all these fancy spa women staring into the hole going, what do we do? <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, plug for Daphne and Manhattan. Uh, apparently it's, it's doing great on all the social media and whatnot, but, um, 
And they get a lot of walk-in traffic because mm-hmm. New York's really a walk-in kind of a thing. And people right, just walk by and they're like, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. They, they have some sort of special serum for your face that is only available at, at like very select. Like there'd be like one or two locations to buy this stuff in, a, in the state kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And you can't buy it online. So that's why they get a lot of their business. But anyway, so yeah, I can absolutely see that. Well, what are some other themes that you could identify with in Natasha Leone's character? So as it becomes clear that she's trying to process um, the age that she was when her mother first became psychotic and then commits suicide and the way that she's unfolding that. And I think it's either the second to last episode or the final episode. She actually pulls so there's all this stuff about like smashing glass and mirrors and it comes up a couple different ways but there's this really intense scene where she pulls out broken glass from her mouth and um you know i think anyone that's had a rough childhood it just has that feeling that like within me is something so toxic and broken that if i pull it out i'm you know i might just hemorrhage in the process and so i thought the way they did that was so beautiful and um horrifying and then it's after that that she's able to join the living again um so i think one of the things that really struck me in the interviews with her was she was saying in this show I get to do things that usually only the real tough guys get to do. Um, But she's also doing things that, what do you mean? Tough guys? Like she gets to yell at her drug dealer and she gets to have sex with whoever she wants and be unapologetic with it. Yeah. That was one thing that I loved about the show was I was watching it and I thought, man, they're, they're writing a story that is, the way that men write about other men. Yeah. These women are writing about women the way that men are writing about men have, have written traditionally about, about men, but it's not like hatred of men, right? It's just in the same way that a lot of men writers don't hate women. It's just from a women's perspective, so to speak in the way that film and TV has always traditionally been from a man's perspective. And I noticed that although there were men characters who were fleshed out and had, you know, three dimensions, they didn't have as many dimensions as Natasha Lyonne's character or even like some of the other women in the story. And I just remember thinking like, this feels good. And this is, this is a, and then all the queer people and all the, all the colors and attitudes and it's never shamed, you know, like her friend who I believe is bisexual uh, she wakes up drunk the next day and that scene where that guy has a dildo, dildo like on the wrong way. I yeah. have thought so much about that. Like where they, was he lying flat? Was he having sex both ways? Like I've thought a lot about that. <laughs> I, need, I need to know more. <laughs> How exactly was that device being used? <laughs> or was he fucked so hard that it swung around the other Oh, side? well, that would be hard. So, I'll, just, I'll leave it at that. But, but yeah. Uh, I have some doubt about that. They, they just don't get into it. They, just, they don't explain it. Right. They're just, they're just like, it's, that and they don't, they don't shame it. They don't make it seem, they don't make her seem like a quote unquote dirty slut. They don't make her seem like she's unhealthy. It's all 
just healthy, sex positive, every, and even drugs are dealt with in that way. They're just like, yeah, you know, people take drugs, big fucking deal, deal with it. You know what I mean? Like most people have taken drugs and they're fine. You know, like we don't have to make it seem like it's this, like even the drug dealers who are downstairs are these like nice people or the, right, they're like, Hey, did, how did it work for you? And she's like, not very well. Yeah. <laughs> And they're kind of concerned. They're like, oh, you know, and, and her drug dealer is like this Indian guy who seems like the sweet, the guy who's upstairs. He's like the sweetest guy you've ever met. You know, uh, I think he's Sikh, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just loved that as a person of color myself. I, mm-hmm. it, it, it just boggles me, you know, like I watched Avengers Endgame. Have you seen it yet? No, I probably well, won't. So feel free to spoil it. I, this isn't a spoiler, really. But, you know, they talk about how diverse it is now. And it's heading in that direction. I commend them. But there isn't a goddamn Asian around except for Wong, which is like this super secondary, secondary, secondary character. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm like, hey, America, uh, something like, I don't know, 5% of us are Asian American. So how about like, throw us a bone every once in a while, you know, mm-hmm. especially now on some level, it's like, well, you know, these aren't really Asian characters. Well, they changed Dr. Strange's mentor from an Asian person to a white woman, mm. you know, and the, he goes to Tibet. Dr. Strange goes to Tibet, climbs a mountain, you know, enters a temple and finds Wong, who's an Asian guy, but the top person is a white Asian woman. And that character would have been so appropriate to just make an Asian person, even though it's a very secondary character. But it's like, even when you have like, what would be logical to include an Asian person, they still refuse to allow an Asian person to take that role. And it's really bothersome. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing about this is that also there's a variety of Jewish women. Like she is a Jewish woman who's also a computer programmer, also a drug addict. (laughs) Then you have maybe my favorite character. Oh man, where is she? Um, She plays the rabbi's secretary. The Uh, rabbi's secretary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was hilarious. Yeah. Um, Tammy. She plays Shifra. so this idea that like as a non-compliant Jewish person, I know that feeling of like walking into a Jewish environment, <laughs> you're like, I need something. And they're like, we don't need to give it to you <laughs> because you're not, you know, you don't come to temple and you don't do all these things, but she's desperate. And that wonderful moment where Shifra blesses her and says, it's, it's just going to be okay. One, she says, I know the answer for the problem that you're having now, which is so Jewish. It's like we have a prayer and a moment and a way to be with pretty much any catastrophe you could imagine. Um, and then she just takes a moment and she offers it to her, which was just so lovely. And then there is um, her godmother, who's also a therapist, who is portrayed, is also doing, she's doing EMDR, which I thought was really interesting. Right. Um, Ruth Brenner, who she shows up at her house over and over and over again. And you learn the complicated nature of their relationship, that she raised her, they're 
you know, they were best, their parents, she was best friends with her mom. She knew her mom was psychotic. She took her in at some point. There's that wonderful scene where they're discussing what their safe word was when she was a teen. Um, and then TX, I don't know. I just love that character so much. So as you're watching it, are you in a glow of wonderment? What, what's going on for you? Am I in a, am I ever in a glow of wonderment? Um, I'm thinking, I guess it is. It's kind of like a, it's just a wow. <laughs> like, wow. I've never seen characters like this that I could relate to. Um, also a wow that Natasha Leone is like still alive. Um, this is kind of a random story, but long, long ago, I was in France at the Louvre waiting to get in, and she was two or three people ahead of me. So um, at the time, I'm like 27, so she's probably in her early 20s, and she was clearly high out of her mind. And I remember thinking like, oh, I've seen that girl. She's a really talented actress. Man, doesn't look like she's in such good shape. Um You've probably and, seen her in uh, the cheerleader movie where she's a, yeah, she's a or lesbian. American Pie or, um, and then uh, the was song, that was that an important movie to you back then? American Pie or no, the, oh, the, I thought it was cute. The was che- cute. no, the cheerleader movie where yeah, she, yeah, I thought it was cute. Yeah, I remember liking it, but you I mean, know. were you did you know you were a lesbian back then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, because at the time, I remember thinking it was one of the only. I don't know, accessible movies that was about lesbians and their, and their plight or gay people in general. And the, you know, the conversion therapy that they went through and stuff. And yeah, there were other I, movies, but there, it just, that one was almost geared towards more mainstream audience in some ways, you know? Yeah. I thought, I remember loving RuPaul's character. I remember loving that RuPaul was in that movie. That's what stood out the most to me. Yeah. Um, but anyways, if there's any Rufus Wainwright fans out there, the song Natasha is about Natasha Leone, which is just like, God, please just stay alive. <laughs> like, why is it so hard to keep you alive? We all love you so much. You're so talented. Please don't die on us. Um, so I just think it's a miracle, really, that she's alive and is, you know, making her masterwork. She's you know, she's not even 40 yet. Like to create this level of work that has this level of depth and personal understanding is pretty amazing. And um, for all the, and for all the hate that Netflix gets, i just feel like, Hey, we should give some props to Netflix. This show probably never would have been oh no, <laughs> made otherwise, you know? Um, and, so- and it's so funny. I mean, to say like, it's, you know, we're talking about all these horrible things. And I laughed harder watching that show than I think I've laughed at anything in a long time. The the moment, I love the show too. And I'm curious about the next couple of seasons. But the moment, I, I hate to say this, that I love the most, maybe because I'm a dude, is when the dude is, he finally realizes what his transformational, his moment of clarity, if you will, <laughs> when he, you know, keeps going back to his girlfriend who is keeps breaking up with him mm-hmm. and this, this totally earned moment, cause it's well into the, you know, the season, he just, he's like, yeah, I get it. 
you know, and you're right. I have been cold lately and that's mm-hmm. my fault. And I, you know, I, I get it. I, I, I accept your apology and I'm sorry for how distant I've been lately. You know, I get it. And, and he looks to the, the guy that she's cheating and she's, he's like, I, you know, I get you too. You know, I'm, and I don't hate you. I don't, I don't hate you. Um, you seem like kind of a dick, but you know, I, I think you have a heart, you know, there's this total realization, this meta level realization of, uh, the situation that I did not see coming at all. Like I didn't, I didn't really know where his character was going because normally in a show like this, uh, they, in fact, I can't even think of a moment where this sort of thing has happened. Almost all the time, the, the revelatory moment is when he stands up for himself and yells at her. Right. You know, that's, yeah. that's the triumph is when he goes to her and he's strong and he says, look, woman, you cheated on me. It's your fault. And does something to like shut her up or, and shut up the other guy. You know, it's some kind of, you know, look at me and I storm out of the apartment and I'm smiling and the other two are sitting feeling ashamed of themselves. And that was like, not what the resolution was. The resolution was like this mature meta understanding of what had happened up to that point and that he played a part. It was, it was just, was beautiful. right. I- I think that's what sets the show apart is that the everyone's realization is, Oh, I have a part in this. I'm repeating this. Like when Latasha Leone realizes that she's running away from that little girl who is really the little girl inside of her, the Jack Cornfield would call the map maker um, that, you know, the only person that can stop this is you. It's not some giant, heroical thing where you you know confront your abuser or anything it's like you have to stop the pattern that got set off in you i'm sorry all these messed up things happen to you but now the work is with you and that's annoying right that's like who wants to actually do that but Um, it's but it's mature and it's grown up i mean as i get older i just get increasingly more bothered by these adolescent and childish plots in movies mm-hmm. where good prevails over evil and the solution to our problems is to quote unquote stand up for yourself and certainly standing up for yourself is great but you know often in our day-to-day life what we're really facing is a situation in which we and the people around us are all participating in the problem this is a what we classically call a systemic point of view systems theory maybe feminism as well and it's very hard to adopt that point of view because it's just not in our society we tend to think more linearly and more, less systemic and and we also tend to be more self-centered and 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 when we identify with a character on screen we want them to you know, we want them to kick Thanos's ass. You know, we don't want them to sit down with Thanos and say like, how did we both get here? (laughs) Right. Um, So, you know, there are two more seasons, right, Rebecca? I had heard that. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, I don't know. I, because you know, at the very end, there are three Natasha's in that tunnel. Oh, there's her Natasha. There's his Natasha and there's the new Natasha. There's 
you see three different Natashas. She's walking through the tunnel and then two Natashas pass her uh, on either side. If you, you got it's really, it goes by really fast, but it's That's clearly, some meta stuff. I'm going to have to go back and look at that. Well, what I think is going to happen is the other two seasons are going to be the other stories of these two other Natashas. And then in the last season, mm. all three Natashas are going to come together somehow. Like, I, I don't really know exactly, but I, I think that, there's going to be a lot of interesting um, twists. Well, or are they going to do a um, transparent where they start going back intergenerationally to look at how we got here? Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? What, I mean, given the tone of this, Ooh, you know, I'm so excited. I got to think this through for a minute. I mean, there's there's also a lot of like unexplained um, little details, like. What about, what about oatmeal, the cat? Like what the hell happened with that? Right. Cat? You know? Yeah. And the, the homeless man who cuts hair. You yeah. Know, horse. Horse. And then, and then what about her friend, that she, the Asian woman that she always talks, Max, I think her name is, mm-hmm. when she comes out of the vagina door and talks to Max. <laughs> Happy birthday, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, at, you know, when everyone has disappeared, Max is still there. Right. And Natasha is, like, trying to, like, level with her. And Max is like, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. You got to do t- this alone. Yeah. Max kind of knows on some level. And mm-hmm. so does is Max a part of this in the same way that uh, she is, in the same way that Oatmeal is, same as Horse, same as, you know, that other guy? So it's, uh, you know, there's just a lot of So what do you think is going to happen? What do you think the, you know, oh, gosh. things are going to be? Um, this, these are some big questions. I got it. Uh, I mean, I would be interested in the intergenerational trauma part. Um, I would be interested in about the therapist. I'm curious if there's more history there, um, how they live together, like going back to a different younger self, like her teenage self. Um, What what do you think was wrong with the mom? She's like clearly schizophrenic. That whole thing with the watermelons, like filling up the whole car with watermelons. Do you remember that part? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you but know, I think it, I think that was what they were trying to portray. But I could also see them in the next season fleshing it out a little bit more. Where she is actually she bipolar and she's in some manic episode, or she's experiencing some similar kind of um, existential dread that Natasha mm-hmm. was experiencing that could look like schizophrenia, right? Because mm-hmm. if at a certain one of the days that Natasha is living, anyone watching her would be like, oh, you're schizophrenic. You think time is looping. You think people are disappearing. You think you're special at the center. Of the, like it just, you could see, right. you know, maybe the mom was going through something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and the theory that, so I thought when it became clear that she was a video game programmer, that the they were going to explore that metaphor more that she was stuck in a video game. And this idea that like, you know, we just get multiple lives, we get to die over and over and over again. Um, so I feel like there's places to go with that as well. That metaphor of how our culture reflects gaming. Right. Um yeah, so I don't know. I mean, they can go so many different ways. Ooh, I like that. Maybe like at the end of season one, she goes on to level two of the video game. Yeah. And does a whole other thing. And then she goes on to level three of the video game in, in season three. She's got new skills. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm curious what characters will come back. Like, I think 
um, exploring why um, Char- Charlie, the guy that plays Alan, why is he so messed up? Like, what's his experience with his dad or mom? Well, you know, the mom is clearly very successful. She's a doctor. Um, but, you know, why, how did he get to the point where he's suicidal? Right. Um, yeah. And he's clearly so anxious. I mean, what I love too is that he's handling it completely differently. Like she's doing everything she can to bust out and he's just going back and reliving all these horrible moments in the exact, he doesn't want to mess anything up. He's keeping it exactly the same, which is so interesting. Yeah. Uh, So interesting and so realistic. Like when I saw that after like the third loop and because he, the writers and the directors and the actor really portrayed him as a very anxious, uptight person. I just thought, you know, because in my head, I'm like, dude, why are you doing this to yourself? Right. Like you, you could do anything with this day. Why are you repeating this, this horrible moment? But it, after watching, I was like, well, that's what, that's what people would do because right. you're, so scared. you're scared and you're also just desperate for love that you'll get it even if it's hurtful, right? Mm-hmm. You'll, it's like, okay, I could avoid her and not have to deal with that pain, but I desperately want her. I want her to love me. And I'm also not very assertive and I also don't know what's going hap- what's happening inside of me. I just know I have to go to her. I mean, mm-hmm. how many people do that after they break up? It's just like, I know this person is not helpful to me, but I can't help looking at their Facebook page. I can't help texting them at night after a couple glasses of wine. I, I can't help it. And it's, 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 that's what people do almost universally. Yeah. Well, we go back to what we know, right? I mean, that's what you guys taught at Antioch, the whole homeostasis thing. Yeah. We land where we know. Well, you're speaking my language now. Systems theory. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rebecca. Well, that was fun. Oh, that was fun. Thank yeah. you. I want to do more pop culture stuff with you guys. I feel like. Well, I- whenever you watch something, shoot me an email and we'll put okay. it on the agenda. Yeah. All right. Uh, but there's always emails that people are asking you to respond to. I so. know people love my expertise. <laughs> yeah, they do. Seriously. They, it's they, fun they for me. Know. It keeps me fresh. Keeps you fresh. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. Rebecca, why should people take care of themselves? Because you don't want to get stuck with what you only knew when things sucked. You want to find new and better things, new ways of being. Mm-hmm.